kids who are in foster care are not in foster care to any fault of their own. Kids are removed from their homes because their parents or whoever is supposed to be keeping them safe cannot do it. My mom was a wonderful mom. She's a wonderful person, but she just couldn't be the mom that we needed her to be. Children have no control over who their parents are. They have no control over where they're raised or how they're being raised. They're just there. They're children. We're children. Hello, East Anchorage. This is Alaska State House Representative Andrew Gray and East Anchorage Matters. The goal of this broadcast is to keep the constituents of Anchorage's Campbell Park University area, Russian Jack, and Unaka Valley neighborhoods aware of the relevant happenings in the halls of government of our great state. This past week in the Capitol, my office hosted the nonprofit organization Facing Foster Care in Alaska. This group is made up of folks with lived experience in the foster care system as former foster youth themselves. Facing Foster Care in Alaska, FFCA, was founded over 20 years ago by Amanda Mativier with help from Alaska State House Rep at the time, Les Guerra. Those two appeared on my podcast, East Anchorage Book Club, last year. Today, we'll be hearing directly from foster youth who recently aged out of the system. We will hear from the most recent FFCA board president, Angel Gonzalez, and then Mateo Jaime, Kilo Stone, and then three sisters, Anna Redman, Sarah Lewis, and Abby Redman. If you are interested in becoming a foster parent, and please be interested, as you're about to hear, we need more good foster placements. I'm dropping a link in the show notes to the OCS website, Office of Children's Services, where you can learn how to apply. Note, this episode contains discussions of child abuse, neglect, substance abuse, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, drug overdose, and death. If you are thinking of harming yourself, call 988. Someone is waiting for your call. Angel Gonzalez, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your story? I was in and out of the foster care system from the age of five until I was adopted at 16. I was in over 20 placements. I stopped counting after 15 because it was just taking too much of a toll on me <laughs> to, for my number to keep going up. And in my adult life, I tried to go back to recount and I know that I'm missing something. So I just know that it was over 20 placements that I was in. And I'm the oldest of a sibling group of three. I was their mom. I took care of them. I did everything for them. I was even the mom to my mom. And my mom really struggled with alcoholism and making poor choices and that include her relationships. We suffered a lot because of it. And ultimately, her addiction took her life. And she did end up committing suicide from her not being able to get her addiction under control. And she lost us for the last time. And she knew it. And she couldn't deal with it. And I ended up getting adopted at 16, like I said. And things did turn around from there. I have two parents from the South. They're, they're Black, so I connect most to Black culture, Southern Black culture. But I am Alaska Native and Hispanic. 
I'm actually a lot of things. I took 23 of me recently. I am very mixed. <laughs> and I found a whole bunch of family, actually, from my paternal side, 323 me. And I have six siblings that we know of. And oh, so have you met them? I have met the majority of them. There's some here around Anchorage. I met one in Cali. I have two other sisters that. I still need to meet in Minnesota, but we're working on that. It's been a huge journey, especially trying to know who I am and know my culture. Because with my Native side, at a certain point, I disconnected myself purely because I was so ashamed. People talk so bad about Natives, and I did not know that they were healthy Natives, Everything that I saw was not healthy. It was really hard at first, and it took me a long time to know that there is beauty and there's ugly in every culture. That's something that my mom would say to me all the time. And it took me a long time to reconnect, but... Like with your mom's side of the family? Yes. And now I have an aunt who is healthy, and she is really helping me to learn that side of me and be proud of that side of me. And she's sharing so much with me and I love her for it. And I just feel like I'm playing catch up in my adult life because I disconnected myself from my native culture. And then with my Hispanic culture, I was not connected your dad to them. Hispanic? Yes. Mm -hmm. And your mom was Alaska native. Yes. And I didn't know anything about the Hispanic side, and everything that I learned was through textbooks or classes or media, and that's just not authentic. And now I just feel like I'm running to play catch-up. With your 20-plus placements, I guess this is like the lucky few who have one placement or two placements. Why do you think you had so many placements? Why did... Why was each placement so short? Why was there so many transitions? Some of them were 30-day homes. So a you lot knew of it was them. only going to be? Yeah, yes. And one of them bothers me to this day. I had really connected with this lady and really ended up feeling really comfortable with her. And I was happy in that home. And... One day she brought me back to OCS in tears, like she was in full on tears. And I had never seen this woman cry before. And she couldn't tell me why. And I so kept, you have no idea. I had no idea. And I kept asking her, is it something that I did? And she was like, no, no, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. So that one bothers me. Some of the homes... It happened like that because I was reunified way more than I should have been, honestly. <laughs> and then I would get taken away again and put into another home. And some of them were failed kinship placements. And some sometimes I didn't know why I was being moved because I thought that things were going good in the home. So it, it was just a broad... Mm -hmm reason folks who are listening who've 
never interacted with OCS or the foster system who are learning about it for the first time at this moment, what do you want them to know about the system itself and the way it works in Alaska? If you're going into this, it's extremely difficult. It's going to be one of the hardest things that you will ever do. To be a foster parent? Yes. But it is so worth it. You don't know the impact that you're having on these children and these youth lives. And it can be very rewarding. These youth are traumatized. They come with a lot of pain. But you could be their only stability. You could be their only safe place. You could be the only time that they will see a healthy functioning family. And that is crucial. But also remember that you are in it to potentially no longer have this child in your life ever again. Because the goal is always reunification. You are fostering and keeping this child until their parents can get it together to be healthy for them. You want that. That's the end goal. That's what everybody should want in a healthy functioning society is for parents to be healthy and to keep their children. And if they lose them to get them back so that they can live on together. And unless that child has been deemed foster to adopt because the, the family is no longer able to keep, the child's no longer able to go home, then you should always have that mindset. Mm-hmm. Yes, completely treat that child like your own, but absolutely know that any day they can go home because you want their parent, you're, you should be rooting for their parents to get it together and be healthy for their child. Because no matter what, the child's going to want to go home. Mm-hmm. The child always wants their parents. It doesn't matter how old you are. You care about what your parents think. Mm-hmm. You care about what they're doing. You care about how they're living their lives. It doesn't matter how young or old you are. You want your parents. Can you tell us about what you're doing today? I'm working with Facing Foster Care in Alaska. And I actually just passed the torch on to our new board president. I was. So you were the former board president? Yes, I'm the former board president for. FFCA, and I served two terms and was actually extended twice because of COVID. It's been such an honor, and I'm supposed to actually be on a year off, but I love what I do so much, and I know that what we're doing is so important that I can't take a year off. I got to keep going. (laughs) I love FFCA. I love our youth. I love what we're doing, and I know that we're making a difference. I'm also working for the municipality of Anchorage in the clerk's office, and I really love it there. It's a really great job, and I work on call for Covenant House. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Angel Gonzalez. Thank you. Mateo Jaime, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. You're my constituent. Yes. Tell us about your story. So for my first first 15 years of life, I was raised in an extremely abusive situation with my father. The standards were 
Like, if I got anything less than an A, I would get strangled and thrown across the room and kicked and punched. And it just felt... Being at home, I had the, the butterflies going all around because I, I just didn't feel comfortable. And there's nothing I could do about it. And ultimately, he's in prison. My mom's no longer here. I was sent to Alaska to for the funeral of my mom. And a lot of things happened. <laughs> which ended up with me living with my sister and that was for like a year and things just did not work out. And and where was your sister? I'm in Anchorage. In Anchorage. Yeah. So you moved in with your older sister? Yep. And had you grown up with your sister? Oh, no, I yeah. I never really knew her cuz like, she I and your mom like were in Alaska. Um yeah, my mom's Serena was in Alaska and I went from Texas to Alaska and so I lived with my sister and then her boyfriend came in and just things went downhill from there. And this led to me switching different placements. And eventually there was a situation where I was sent to North Star because there's no foster homes available. And the when I've had my preliminary consultation with the so-called doctor, apparently, he told me, oh, you're probably going to be out in two weeks. And I guess in that in North Star terminology, two weeks equals two months because I stayed there for two months. I saw a lot of situations happen where the staff would choke cold kids in the air. And there's this particular circumstance where one youth was acting up and six staff mem- members punched and strangled him. And he, by the end of it, he was all covered in blood and the police took him out. And they arrested the the kid, the staff, just nothing happened with them. They got away with it. And my so-called therapist, I would meet with him once every two weeks. But that's that's considered therapy in North Star. It's one little 30-40 minute visitation with the therapist where you explain what's happening. And then they'll just, the whole time, they're trying to send you to out-of-state facilities, which are probably owned by the same for-profit organization and for me, that's whenever I had to learn how to engage in self-advocacy because there's so many youth that once they go get sent out of state, who knows what happens to them. Every single time the therapist would try to send me to these out-of-state facilities, I just straight up tell them, no, I don't need that. It's just really bizarre that they try to do this to people who are at risk and don't understand the sort of consequences that will come out from you transferring completely out of state to a to institution you don't know ultimately my guardian litem saved me from finally getting out of the north star his name's anthony he's like the best gal ever he's gotten me out of all the terrible situations i've experienced and from there it was back to the reality of living in foster care every single day you're wondering it's gonna what's gonna happen next but in the worst way because you go to school and then you would try to stay at school as long as you could. I would stay until 7 to 8, 9 p.m. And the teachers would have to drive me home just to be able to complete homework because I was not allowed access to phones. I couldn't use phones for homework, couldn't use a computer, couldn't really watch TV. I was ordered to sit on the couch. And if I had gotten up, they told me that they would just throw me out on the streets. This is one particular foster placement. Yeah. And ultimately, the last foster home I end up with 
It was a hoarder house covered in animal feces and rats and bugs of different sorts. And it was almost like the floor was alive with how much stuff was on it, all the clothes. And just to walk straight, just imagine like the ground covered in dirty, stinky, rotten clothes and animal feces and trying to dance just to walk straight. So that's what it was like for me for a full year. And ultimately the foster parents told me I wasn't, I had just graduated. They told me I wasn't allowed to go to college because they needed, they did not budget correctly. They needed me to stay with them to be able to afford their car service payment. So they could get their stipend. Yeah. It was unbelievable that someone would actually say that. And so I was taken aback and I had told Amanda and my independent living worker about what happened. And ultimately we, they spoke with the university. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I got to move out that night and I just left. And since 2020, I've been living on my own and I'm working through school and I'm graduating this December from UA with legal studies degree. And you're planning to go to law school? Oh, yeah. But I'm trying to figure out what I want to do first. I want to be a guardian of item to save kids in similar situations to me. But at the same time, I just want to shoot straight for law school. And what do you think gave you the strength to be able to go to school and do well and shoot for law school? Education has always been something enforced in me and I realize that with other people they have the power to just fall back and ask their parents for help. For me I can't do that. There's nothing to fall back on except for homelessness and so I realize I have to put myself through school to be able to live because if, if I didn't rely on myself I would just end up I'm dead on the streets. And for folks who have never been involved with the foster system, do you have anything in particular you want them to know? There's so many things. For foster youth, it would definitely be, you have the power to to survive what's happening to you. And there are people out there who will help you. And for, you also have the authority to change the system. Because you could go to Gino and advocate for your rights. And then for foster parents, take into consideration the amount of trauma that's being done to them. It's like no matter how good a situation is, there's always damage being done. But people put an emphasis on physical pain compared to emotional pain. That's something I'm still struggling with to this day. It's like my social skills like out the door because of how much I've just been focusing on trauma recently. And so it's people don't understand. They don't know what mental pain looks like in trauma, what it does to you mentally. Mateo, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Kila Stone, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your story. I'm 22 years old. I live in Anchorage, Alaska, and have been for most of my life. My family immigrated from Samoa back when I was one. I went into foster care on my 13th birthday. I remember being called down to the office. 
about 2 p.m. It's like I remember this day for the rest of my life, I think. I've forgotten a lot of other things, but I still remember this specific day. And I remember thinking, oh, my mom must be here to pick me up because it's my birthday. We must be going out somewhere or something like that. I came down to the office and my sister joined me on the stairs because both of us were summoned. And I remember seeing like a whole bunch of police (laughs) and our principal looking very concerned. So we were sat down. They started investigating us and then they took us to, I can't remember the place, but it's like OCS, but a smaller branch of OCS. And they took us there. They split me and my sister and they just started grilling us with a whole bunch of questions and making us draw pictures and things like that. And then before we knew it, they were like, okay, you're not going to go home today. You're going to go somewhere else that's safe. I did not know what was going on. I just knew that I'm not going to go home because that's what they just told me. When we were being put into the vehicles to be taken to our foster placements, I saw my mom crying and she was like saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And I remember thinking, what is what is going on? Our social worker was assigned to us shortly, a couple days later. And the first thing that they said was, I promise you'll be back with your parents in about six months. This is only going to last about six months. That's what the social worker said. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure why they promised that because we ended up staying in care about four to five years. And we never reunified, never really reunified with our mom. Did you do mommy visits or... Not for the first two years. We weren't even allowed to talk to her or call her. We weren't even allowed to call our other siblings that were split up from us. How many siblings are there total? It was four at first. Two and two, and we were split up. I only had communications with my sister that I lived with, but the two youngest ones, I never knew what was going on with them or anything like that. It was like a big secret. It wasn't until they passed a law that encouraged or mandated sibling visits and things like that, that we finally got to see each other weekly, which was really good. We did have a failed reunification. Me and my sister, the one that was with me, we stayed with a lovely lady who took care of us like her own kids. Unfortunately, we had a reunification because my mom finally met the requirements that allowed us to come back home. It was bittersweet. We loved that we were going back home. But we were sad that we were leaving our foster mom. Once we got back home, things were good for about a month, and then they really went downhill again. I ran away because um, my mom— How old were you then? I was like 14. I was a freshman in high school. And I didn't go to school because I was a runaway, so the police there would just bring me back home, and I didn't want to be in the situation. My mom ended up losing our house, like our apartment— And then her and my younger siblings were living out of the Kapukiak Inn on C Street for three months. And OCS was aware of the situation, but they did not step in until about winter time. So my siblings lived in that condition for the whole summer. When we did go back to our foster mom, things weren't the same. You did go back to the same foster mom? We did. You and your sister. And we thought things were going to go back to the same, but it was different. Only because she had grieved us and had already moved on and accepted other kids. So I felt like there was tension now between us. So things never really got better. Then my mom lost her parental rights because we had re- we were reaching our six-year mark. I was in the Alaska Military Youth Academy at that time, and I was going to testify against my mom if she wasn't going to relinquish her rights because she was fighting to keep them. But unfortunately, my siblings had moved too many times 
around the system and they were, I could see the toll that it was taking on them. And I did not want them to continue to go through the system anymore. And I know my younger siblings were high on the adoption list because a lot of people have been looking at them for quite some time once we reached a four-year mark. And I thought if it's better for them to be in a home where they could stay together, then I'm going to testify against my mom. And once my mom heard that, she relinquished her rights. All our dads lost their rights immediately because none of them were in the picture and were in jail or out of country. So then we were up for adoption. I emancipated from the state at 17, but my four younger siblings were going to be adopted by our close family friend that we had met through Beacon Hill, which is an awesome organization that helps facilitate family visitations. And the family had actually extended the invitation to me, and they said, you're our family too. And so that's how I got adopted as an 18-year-old with my siblings. But recently... I had moved up here, and I was doing my own thing. Where was this happening? (laughs) Oh, the family that adopted us, they're originally from Oklahoma. Okay. They had moved out. They were originally my younger siblings' uh, foster parents after they had been introduced to us as a family friend um, because there was lack of placements Mm -hmm. in OCS. They were not wanting to be foster parents, but they did it anyways for my younger siblings. Um, When the reunification came around, they were moving to Texas, so they left. Um, But they always kept in contact with us. So when they heard that the reunification had failed and that we were now up for adoption, they were the first ones on the list to say, hey, we have been with these children for some time. Please let us know what we can do. And at first, they didn't want to adopt us because they were wanting us to be reunified with our mom. They were very supportive of her, and I was encouraging her to get her life together But unfortunately, they understood that she just couldn't with how she was at that time. So they stepped in and adopted us. So we lived with them for a little bit out of state. We did some traveling. And then I came back here on my own to do my own things. And then my two younger siblings, they gave me guardianship over them. Because just because a child gets adopted by a loving family does not mean that they don't still go through the traumas of the things that they have gone through and they don't still struggle with identity issues because our adoptive parents are white and we love them just how they are. But unfortunately, they cannot teach us cultural things. And all the places that we lived, there's not a lot of big Samoan population. So they let me take care of them for now so that way the girls can be around their people and just learn to Are you active in the Samoan community? No, that's my own trauma from (laughs) being in the system. I lost a lot of my heritage and culture. It's very awkward when I see someone people at the grocery store because as they greet each other in a way that they usually greet each other, I'm not comfortable because I'm also very traumatized by someone people because a lot of my trauma came from my family, which are obviously someone people. It's hard, but I do my best to make sure that they don't have to deal with what I'm dealing with now in my adulthood, always wondering who I am and what I'm supposed to do and which part of me is this almost like a split personality (laughs) because my cultural values differ from my American values, if that makes sense. And it's a struggle, but we're learning to heal together. We're thankful for that opportunity. And, For folks who are listening who know nothing about foster 
care in Alaska. Do you have a message for those folks? Yeah. Kids who are in foster care are not in foster care to any fault of their own. Kids are removed from their homes because their parents or whoever is supposed to be keeping them safe cannot do it. My mom was a wonderful mom. She's a wonderful person, but she just couldn't be the mom that we needed her to be. She usually left us with other people or introduced strangers into the home that came with their own baggage and things like that. When people think foster kid, they think, oh, you're a troubled child. And usually the connection that most people make, that's not true. Children have no control over who their parents are. They have no control over where they're raised or how they're being raised. They're just there. And they're dealing with the situation that they've been dealt by life. And when they go into foster care and they go to these foster parents who think that, oh, you're just another troubled child that I can make money off of, it's unfair because that child, yes, they may have behavioral issues. And yes, they may talk back and they may make life a little bit harder as a, to you as a foster parent. But you have to keep in mind that child is reacting to the trauma that they're experiencing or have experienced in the way that they can and in the way that they know how to. They're children. We're children. And we never had anyone to tell us how to moderate our feelings. No one's ever taught us how to take care of ourselves. No one's taught us how to act in public. So you're the person that we're looking towards to teach us those things. So to immediately dismiss us as troubled children that no one wants is not setting that child up for success for the future, and you're continuing the cycle. Kila Stone, thank you so much for being on the show today. Nope. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Anna Redmond, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So tell us a little bit about your story. I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. I am one of 12 siblings. And what number are you? I'm number six. I'm smack dab in the middle, the only one with red hair, bad eyes, and the tallest girl in the family. So I'm like the black sheep of the family, or at least I was growing up. Like the cheaper by the dozen movie, they nicknamed the little redhead boy FedEx. That's what my siblings would call me growing up. So I grew up in Anchorage with my siblings until 2005. We were placed into foster care for the very first time. How old were you in 2005? I was nine. Okay. So I was placed into foster care. I was in foster care for a year, and then I was reunified back with my parents or my mom. And following that, we were then removed a couple years later again, placed back into care, then went false reunification again or failed reunification, and then went back into foster care for the third time and then was reunified. My younger siblings were all removed from the home when I was 17, and they were in foster care until just recently. But I was, for some reason, I was, even though I was 17, OCS didn't feel the need to remove me, which was interesting. They left me homeless with my parents. That's a little bit about me. Because you were removed so many times. What, what, what do you wish was different? Everything. <laughs> a lot. I believe when we were reunified, there was a band-aid put on the issue and 
My mom's from another country. She came to America when she was 16. She's from the Ukraine. Her values and the way that she did things is completely different from America. And being from a different country and then meeting an American man and then all of a sudden you're popping out kids every year, one after another, it becomes a lot. I wish OCS would have taken into consideration the rather than the band-aid that they were putting on. I wish that they would have done one prevention because a lot of the removals could have been prevented if they provided the correct services. If you're comfortable sharing, what was the band-aid and what would have been the better prevention policy? The band-aid that they did was telling my mom to get a restraining order against my dad because there was abuse going on, domestic violence. So that was one Band-Aid. The second Band-Aid was my OCS asking my mother's relatives, mind you, who are also foreigners from a different country, to be a third party without my mom's family members fully understanding what that meant because they spoke English was their second language. They, Nodding and saying, okay, yeah. but not really um, So OCS was saying, okay, mom, this is what you have to do to keep your kids. And I guess this said, I didn't, I did not know that this happened. These band-aids happened for the entirety of my life up until two years ago when I was speaking with a social worker who was working with other family members of mine. And she actually was telling me, do you remember these things happening growing up? Like you lived with mom's relatives. You guys lived in a shelter. Like, do you remember these things? And I was like, yeah, I thought we were just homeless. But these were interventions that OCS, OCS was, yeah. But my mom's family members didn't under the, understand the extent of that. So when it came to a third party, my mom's family members, something happened. And I just remember the cops in OCS basically showing up one day with vans looking for my dad even though he wasn't in the home at the time, and then just telling us, get what you can and go sit in a van. And I was nine years old when that first happened. But OCS had been involved since the time I was an infant. It just sounds like to me that there were too many attempts at reunification. There was far too many attempts at reunification. And it just and, seems absurd to And me. it failed. And while I am so appreciative that it happened because... And for you at you know, 17, to still to, be with your mom. Yeah, my, like, both my parents. I was sleeping on an air mattress with my dad. I'm a 17-year-old high schooler sleeping on an air mattress on my brother-in-law's floor because OCS, for some reason, did not remove me when they came and removed my siblings. And when they came in to remove my siblings, I was working... At the time, I got a phone call. I rushed home, and I actually took my siblings, and I hid in the woods because I didn't want them to go. And then I was, like, threatened with, like, a charge of kidnapping or something. So I, like, took them back because I was so terrified of being a criminal. But I tried everything to keep them from going. But I was so powerless at 17 to do anything. And then recently, in 2020, my youngest brother passed away in his foster home. Following that, I immediately, the day that it happened, I my other little brother actually came and he moved in with me and I became a foster parent to him. And then a little while later, I got a phone call from the social worker saying, hey, your sister has nowhere to go. Can she stay with you for a couple of weeks? A couple of weeks turned into well over a year. Um, 
So you basically became a foster. Yeah, I became parent. a foster parent to two of my siblings. I don't want to have you share anything that you don't want to share, but if you want to talk about your brother who passed away in care. Yeah. So it is hard, but I will because I feel it is important because it could have been prevented if somebody would have listened to what was being said. My brother, JJ, was 15. He was in a foster home. And multiple times I can picture myself and my sister, Sarah, sitting in the courtroom and saying, this is not appropriate. This man is not an appropriate foster parent. He was falling asleep during hearings. I don't want to say nodding off, but that's what it seemed to be. Something wasn't right. My brother was allowed to roam the streets and pretty much do whatever he wanted to do. And October 7th was the last time I saw my brother. He came over because he was, yeah, October 7th, 2020, he came over. Sixth, he came over because he was at 15 years old, intoxicated, called his foster parent, and his foster parent refused to drive to Anchorage to pick him up. I was the closest person to wherever he was at. So I said, yeah, come over. You can stay with me. Just be quiet when you come in, not knowing the next day would be the last day I would see him. And when he was with me, he opened up to me and had let me know he was using drugs. And he felt like he was becoming our dad because our dad struggles with substances. And I told him, no, you're not. It's going to be okay. Look at us. We're all still here. There's 12 of us. We've been through so much. We got this. I told him, please come back on Friday because I have a busy week this week with my daughter had school. When she was in kindergarten, we were doing the online learning. I told him, come back on Friday. Let's have dinner. Let's discuss how we can get you sober and move forward. And Friday afternoon, I received the phone call that my brother was found dead by a contractor who was working on the home in his room. And while the circumstances surrounding it, what happened, there's so much that we don't know. But what we do know is that the foster parent was told there was a foster, a former foster. I believe he may have been adopted or he was just a former foster of that foster parent who was a convicted felon or he was he had a criminal record pretty lengthy at his young age, was told he could not be in the home. The foster parent did not respect that and ultimately allowed this adult into the foster home. And this adult is the one who was suspected of supplying my brother with the drugs that killed him and the foster parent. Um, there's, there was not, there was no, the only people that were punished in this situation was me and my siblings and my parents for losing the baby of our family because OCS failed to listen when we sat in the courtroom saying, please do something. I found him walking down the street with three children under the age of seven. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, these are my foster parents' kids. And he said, oh, they're too messed up to take care of them. So I took them for a walk. I immediately called the social worker and the guardian ad litem. And I said, what is going on? This is unacceptable. I would see my brother out past midnight, just riding around the neighborhood. And multiple times it was stated in court, this is not appropriate. And ultimately nothing other than the foster parent's license being revoked or removed, was done. Um, I'm yeah. so sorry. 
And I wish there could be some legal ramifications for to the foster parent. That was neglect. It was neglectful to allow the individual, knowingly he was selling drugs, into a home with troubled foster youth. And a lot of it could have been prevented if the Office of Children's Services would have just listened to us saying this is not a safe place. It's hard to pivot. It is. It is a hard thing. I've, (laughs) I've, like, it's been three and a half years since it happened, and still it's hard. So I get it. It is a hard, hard conversation to pivot from. There were way too many failed reunifications, and I think the reason was is because we were such a big sibling group, it was hard to figure out what to, to do. To figure out everybody. what to do. The easiest really. option is just put all 12 Put back. all be back, and then, oh, a couple years later, some of you guys will be over the age of 18. Mm-hmm. We won't have to worry about them. And that's honestly what it seemed like because – when my older siblings hit a certain age, OCS didn't come in and remove them, but they removed the rest of us. It should have honestly stopped after the second time because I I watched my siblings grow up in the foster care system, the four youngest, and it breaks my heart the amount of times that they and the amount of times that they were unified and with OCS knowing the way my father would physically abuse us. And OCS repeatedly returned my siblings back to him. My dad would do everything, quote unquote, everything to get them back. But as soon as he had them back, it was back down the drain. And that's the same way it was for us. But my younger siblings, definitely, it was so traumatizing for them. They were in and out of North Star, got 50 plus placements for them, some of them. It was awful because they were taken, given back, taken, given back, taken, given back multiple times in that it does a number on you. Do you have any of your siblings in your home now? I don't. I actually closed my foster license just in October. Um, It was time for me to move on from being foster. They were adults. So I was like, my brother had, my other younger brother had moved out and he got his own place. And then I had Abby with me. And I was like, it's time for you to get your wings and fly. I need my house back. Like right. my kids. And you need- have, how many kids do you have? I have two of my own children. And I was living in a very small house. I moved my room down into the basement and my kids' room to accommodate my siblings so that they had a safe place because I didn't I was always so worried about them. But it was time. <laughs> but it was amazing. Being able to foster them was helpful to foster our relationship because when we all went into foster care. I was never placed with any of my siblings other than that first time in 2005, I was placed with a couple siblings. But when I was removed again, a few years later, I was never placed with another one of my siblings again. And our family visitations were once a week. We had to be pulled out of school every week, a few hours early. And we would have a two-hour visit at Salvation Army. And that went on for quite a while, but once my younger siblings were put back into foster care in 2018, there was no push for visits because they were older. My sister, Sarah, she, as soon as my siblings were placed into foster care, she immediately tried to start getting custody of them. She's like, how can I do this? What do I do? And it took OCS months to do that. But she, she started fostering my siblings then and then Two of my sisters got into it, two that were being fostered by Sarah. So one of them came to stay with me, 
So I started fostering actually in 2018 for the first time and then did that for just a few months. What do you think Alaska needs to do to be better? We have this amazing group facing foster care in Alaska. We've lived this. We are experts in this. If more people would listen to what we are saying, then we could get our point across as individuals who have lived this. Because I don't think policymakers or the individuals who are writing these rules and regulations have gone through the system to witness it. It's one thing to put it down on paper, but it's another thing to live through it. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. Sarah Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You're Anna Redmond's sister, Correct. older sister. I am. I'm Anna Redmond's older sister. I, the fourth one in line, yes, raised eight younger ones. Tell us a little bit about your story. So I'm Sarah Lewis. I was born and raised here in Alaska. I've been here my whole life. I grew up in Anchorage mainly. So I got placed in the foster care system for the first time when I was 11. So didn't really understand what was going on prior to foster care. Just living in my home with neglect, substance abuse, parents in and out. Thought it was normal growing up like that. I raised my eight younger ones. I'm one of 12. We didn't really know what was normal. So we thought that was normal. So when we left out of there, going to other people's homes, we saw normalcy. Do you remember the day you were removed? I can tell you it was August for sure. Um, It was probably a week to two weeks before school started. And it was very interesting the way it happened Um, because we were living at our biological home and my parents were in and out. We didn't really know what was happening. When you say in and out, like sometimes not coming home at all? Yeah. Both of them. Neither parent was in the house. Yeah. Or they were outside in the shed doing substances. Now as an adult, I know, but I didn't know as a child. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I was in the household making sure it was going and running. Sometimes... To be honest, we found I found parents passed out, like unconscious. And yes, so and as a eight year old, you don't know, right? And you're just like, okay, mom's sleeping or dad's sleeping and whatnot. So our grandpa actually came in and took us like for a brief period before that. I can't recall like how long. Maybe it was like a month to two weeks. He had us, and then OCS intervened and said we got to do a safety plan. Safety plan was put in place. Dad was told that he could not be at the house anymore. And then mom had to have a third party. OCS came and checked in one day. Mom's third party wasn't there. So that was cause for removal. So they came in and removed us all. I remember two Astro vans pulling up. And they said, you guys got to pack your stuff. So I started loading clothes in baskets. Not understanding what's happening next. (laughs) Sorry. And... I just remember, okay, what's happening? I got to get clothes ready to go for my siblings and my younger ones. And there was only seven of us at the time. There, My mom wasn't, didn't have the eighth, the youngest yet. And so I remember getting the laundry baskets and I'm like, okay, they're like, the little ones are going to go in one van and the three oldest are going to go in another. And I feel like that point is where we separated as siblings like the three older ones and then you know what the younger ones because I was the oldest going to it was a children's home in Anchorage and so I had I remember specifically going there and they put us in two separate rooms we didn't know what was happening and I was a caretaker and they would not let me be 
around the little ones. I'm like, oh my gosh, like what's happening to them? Are they okay? And so after that, we all, we got placed into different foster homes. So then we got separated out. Um, It was elementary school. I was very connected with my fourth grade teacher. And all of a sudden behind the scenes, my fourth grade teacher's becoming an emergency foster parent. Oh, wow. So behind the scenes, and then a, a week before school started, I moved into my fourth grade, fourth grade teacher's home. Yep. And started living there and stuff. And then they worked on getting my younger brother, Daniel, at the time, to move in and with us and whatnot. And so we lived there for a little bit of time. And then my brother had to leave due to behavioral, health, behavioral reasons. And then we... I had left because I was alone in that home and I wanted to be with a sibling. And an opening opened up in another foster home with my sister, Becky, Mm -hmm. and we are nine months apart. Mm -hmm. So we were close at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I moved into that home and that was our last home or our last home within that that time span of a year. And then we got a transition back to um, mom. So we reunified with mom. And then we had, that was when the 12th one was born. And then we stayed at home uh, for a couple of years. And then um, chaos started coming back. I don't feel like the state um, helped and provided like the right resources um, to the parents. Uh, I feel that the parents that are coming into the OCS system, they lack the support they need. They don't have the community they need. Um it takes a, a village to raise a child. They don't have that village to raise mm-hmm. a child. So they need that help to continue raising it. So I think that it was a lack there. If there was more support and help, there could have been, I feel, not a second removal, a mm-hmm. third removal or mm-hmm. a fourth removal. I just feel like it's just bad practice anywhere. Uh, every removal is a trauma. Correct. People need to be able to objectively assess the situation and say, is there really a chance of reunification? Because if you push them back and take them out again, you're re-traumatizing them all over again. Yes. Yes, I agree. But then also I feel that let's keep them with family. Where was my family at that time? My mom's side of the family. And your grandfather. Why didn't that work out? My grandfather... I wasn't comfortable with him. He actually ended up abusing me while I was there. So I I was not going to be there. I refused. And so I actually went back to my bio, my mom and whatnot. I was mommy's girl, mommy's tail. I followed my mom everywhere. So I went back to my mom because she was my safety. I was like, I don't, he's not going to do that to me. This was your dad's dad? Yeah. So I was like, nope, we're not going to do that. And then the safety plan went in place. So when you say you wish that family had been explored more, did you have aunts, uncles? I had aunts and uncles on my mom's side of the family. We were so connected in, I don't have a connection now with this family, my Mm. mom's side of the family. But when we were young, we were going over there. They were big support, but there was a barrier because they're Ukrainian. My Mm. mom is an immigrant from Ukraine. So that barrier right there. They couldn't understand the system. They didn't know how to become like a kinship placement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a lack there in lost relationships. Mm. I wish I had... You know what I mean? How are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm making it. I take it day by day, I feel like right now. I was a foster parent. I've closed my license. I was a foster parent to my siblings um, the last removal. So June 26 of 2018, they went back into the care. And I got a phone call that night asked, you know, saying they were in care. That's when I went in. And I was like, I need to become a placement. I was 25 at the time in a single-bedroom apartment. And I'm like, I need them. It took me 63 days for me to get placement of them when the law says in the first 45 days. 
but I was calling that night. And they said, no. There's lots of biases within the system. Um, mm. But let's think about the family. Mm. How are we connecting with the family? Mm. Are we helping them, the children get visits? Mm. I understand if a, ch- a child goes into your home at birth, what about all the other family? Mm. It's not just a mom and dad. There's mm. a grandma, grandpa. There's auntie, uncles. Mm. Who's doing that research? And the siblings. Correct. Do you know what I mean? Who's doing that stuff? Mm. The goal A is always reunification. Let's support that. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we supporting reunification mm-hmm. and the family contact? Mm-hmm. For folks who are listening who maybe have no knowledge of this system and are learning about it for the first time, what do you think is the most important thing for them to know? I think most important thing for them to know is if a child is constantly repeating something, they're saying something because something's not right. I feel like I was not listened to well in the system not listened to as a foster parent, not listened to as an adopted parent due to me growing up in the foster care system and people have a lot of biases. But unfortunately, people grow and they change. They're not the same person they were 10 years ago. They learn and and change and evolve as a person. Mm -hmm. So they don't like need to look at that file. It's it should be confidential at that point. What about our youth that was in foster care and then aged out on their 21st birthday, grew up, but then still continue to have siblings in care, mm-hmm. but then there's still biases. Why did it take 63 days for me to get placement with my siblings when it said that within 45 days I should be able to get placement? But I called that night and I said, I can come get them right now. Mm-hmm. Let me come get them right now. Why? Why can't they emergency license me when they can emergency license somebody else? Mm-hmm. So it's listening to the youth listening to the people that are constantly repeating it, listening to the experts of this system. Mm -hmm. They lived it. They breathed it. They understand it. Mm -hmm. Everybody that has not done it, they have not lived it. They don't know what it's like to be in foster care. They're making laws, changes, policies to things on children's lives that will affect them for the rest Mm -hmm. of their lives. And they will affect the children that are not there now Mm -hmm. and the ones that are in now. Mm -hmm. So listening and just... getting lived experience. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Sarah. Thank you. Abigail Redman, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. You go by Abby, right? Yes. And your sisters are Sarah and Anna. Yes. Let's get started just by learning a little bit more about you and what your experience was like growing up. I was born and raised in Anchorage. I'm one of 11 siblings, or one of 12. And what number are you? I am 10. Okay, so you have two two younger. Yeah, I have two younger, my little brother and my little sister. And I was first placed into foster care at the age of two. Don't know really much of what happened because of that age. I know there was a lot of a lot of confusion. I know that, but I don't know much of what happened at that first removal just because I was so young. And then I was removed again three other times. What do you remember from later placements? I think the first thing that I remember about the foster care system or being within the investigative situation was a group home or me and my brother, Noah. He's one year older than me. And there was a bunch of other little kids in there, too. It was like almost like a daycare, kind of. They had bunk beds, like one bunk bed in a room. And the girls were on one side, boys were on one side. The only thing I could remember is from that one is always trying to find my brother. Where is my brother? Where is he at? We would meet. There's a 
So our rooms, it was my room, bathroom, his room. So I would go in the bathroom and I would knock on the wall so he couldn't sneak out of his room. We would sit on the floor because there was a window. And so we would sit on the floor and hide so we could sit there and spend some time together. Um, because all the other times we were together, it was a bunch of random kids. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know who was giving us a, a bowl of cereal in the morning. So we stuck together. We would bring each other books. I would put them, like I said, we had bunk beds and they had the wooden slats. So I would put the books in the slats so I could read them at night. And I had a fish one. It had a goldfish on it. And me and him would trade that one back and forth. And we would sit there and it was just always us two. We didn't play with any other kids. We didn't know anybody else. The whole time we were there, first thing when we were available to come out of our rooms, we looked for each other. Breakfast, we were eating our soggy cereal together. How old were you then? I was maybe five or something around. I was really, really young. Um, and he was only one year older than me, so we're both pretty young at this age. We're oblivious as to what's happening, don't know what's going on. And now that I think about it when I'm older, I didn't even realize it was a group home. I didn't realize that was mm. even a placement mm. until I got older. And I was like, I was spending nights there. And you had placements with families after that? Here and there, yeah. A couple of placements I would have, maybe a sister or a brother. Usually it was one of the, I'm one of the four younger ones, so it was usually us four. It was me paired with one of the younger. four. At one point I was in a foster home with Sarah, but shortly after I arrived, I remember her leaving. But it was predominantly just my younger siblings put in placements with them, not much with any of the older siblings. As Now, the older siblings took me in as their foster kid, but being foster siblings and the placement wasn't really... Um, you got put in an institution. I did. Do you remember that and what ha that, how that happened? So I was I was put into a couple of mental health or psychiatric institutions, but the one that I have the most problems with and the most concerns with is North Star. I was placed there three times. One of the three times I was placed there as a foster placement or as a a bed. I needed a bed. Um, so it wasn't because of any concerns. It was like they had nowhere else for you to go. Right. There was no beds, and it was that, and my caseworker said they'd have me out in a couple days into a foster home, but I was there, I think, 27 days it was. It was, it was a good amount of time. Um, definitely wasn't there for only a couple days. Um, all the experience that I've had there um, were negative. The first time I was brought there was by my dad. And me and my little sister, Megan, had a what they like to call blowouts the night prior. And... A tantrum? Yeah. Like hitting. a tantrum, screaming, crying, being aggressive, throwing things, destruction of property. That was something that a lot of us had a problem with growing up just because of what we saw, I think. But for my little sister, especially had challenges. The night 
we she had a big blowout and something had happened and I didn't like it so I had got frustrated as well and that was the first night I had ever made a hole in the wall. I elbowed the wall and it made an elbow mark and my dad got so so mad at me but I didn't know why because all of the other wall was missing because of my little sister but I made a indent in the wall and I was he was furious at me and I didn't know why I was like my little sister has a whole poster of no wall and I make a little dent and I'm you're banging my head on the ground and so do you remember how old you were then about I was 12 yeah I was 12 because when I was placed at North Star, they put me and my little sister in the preteens unit at first, and that's at the main hospital for North Star. And I don't even think it was a week later, I was taken out of the preteens unit and put into the adolescent girls unit, which is another building. And that building is for females only. It's the acute as well as the residential treatment for the females or adolescent girls. So I was put in the adolescent girls at the age of 12, and it was because me and my little sister just butt heads so much that we couldn't be in the same no, space. Fighting, you know? so they yeah, separated you. so they separated us, and this was in 2016, and I was put to the adolescent girls unit, and the first night I was there, there was four fights, and these girls range from, like I said, 12 to 18. You're with 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds in one building, in one unit, secluded, isolated. You don't see anything from the outside world. You can't get newspaper. You can't hear what's going on outside of what's happening inside the building. We're all amped. We're all there's nothing to do. When I first arrived in the uh, adolescent girls unit, it was scary. I was terrified. I, when I first got there, they make you take your clothes off and intake them and your jewelry and whatever you have, and they'll write it down and intake it. And um, you have to wear scrubs for the first 24 hours so that they know you're new um, and you're on unit restriction or something of the sort it's called and you have to stay on the unit for the first 24 hours you can't go down to the lunch hall you can't go to the gym you can't go to the activity room um so your meals were brought up to you um, i mean did you get contact from caseworkers did it, family anything did you have visit visitors during your three different stays there so the first time I did, but I told them I didn't want to see my dad. So your dad was the visitor the first couple of times? Yeah, and I didn't want to see him, so I would stay on the unit. I didn't want to go downstairs. I didn't want to go off the unit for visits. And I know my sisters would come in sometimes and bring me a McChicken from McDonald's because the food is just so gross. It's either you starve or you force yourself to eat the disgusting food. And at that point... I couldn't starve myself because I was on so many medications that I needed food. So my sister Natasha would come in, Sarah would come in, Anna would come in, 
together sometimes, separately, one-on-one. -on -one. This second time I was there, I didn't have many problems with visiting either, but the third time I was there during COVID and Sarah was my foster mom at the time and she wasn't allowed to come in the building. What was the reason for the third time to go to the third time I was struggling with mental health. My brother had recently passed away. I struggled with audio and visual hallucinations and I was having some suicidal ideations. I didn't feel safe around myself or within the house I was because of myself. And so my sister's husband had taken me to the hospital and it was round after round that time. I mean, I went to my therapist and I told them they took me to the hospital and then I was taken back home even after saying like I was... Because you had been really close to JJ. Y'all had done placements together. Mm -hmm. He was, he's my Irish twin. His birthday's April 17th and mine's May 28th. So he's like my baby. He's my Irish twin. So we were close. Yeah, um, it was a big struggle around that time just because of the loss of my brother. That was the whole reason I was struggling. I was seeing him but it wasn't him. It was his body. His funeral it happened to be an open casket. So the hallucination was the face that was in the casket, but his real body. And I couldn't do it. It hurt. And my sister, Sarah, and her husband are just looking at me scared. Is she okay? And I'm just sitting here and I'm hallucinating my brother that's now deceased. And I had, I've had hallucinations where he's, it's not my fault. I want to come back and I'm sitting here and I know it's not his fault and I dang well know he wants to come back. So I was struggling a lot with the loss of my brother and it was COVID during that time and we had just moved into a new place. Sarah just purchased a lovely house and so we were all getting used to the swing of thing. Our, my little sister was with us at the time as well, Megan. Me and her would have some arguments too. But so the night I was, my sister's husband took me to the hospital. I was seeing JJ on the way to the hospital on the highway. Sarah lives out in the valleys. We had to go to Matsu Regional. And while I'm going, I'm seeing my brother standing in the ditch on the highways on my way there. And her husband's, you're okay. We're safe. We're going to get you to the hospital. And he's just reassuring me the whole way. And he just, he was like, I love you. And you're going to be okay. Um, and so I was back and forth within Matsu Regional. I, was, I think I was in and out like four times before they had finally, like, she needs help. She needs help. And when I got there, I knew they were going to send me somewhere. I didn't know where, but I told them North Star cannot be an option. Even my sister Sarah advocated as hard as she could to not get me into North Star knowing how horrible of a place it is. She advocated so hard and I saw a stretcher come in after I was in the psyche ER for some time at Matsu and I saw the EMTs walk in with it and they're talking about North Star and I overhear them and I'm sitting here and I'm like, I'm the only one who needs to be sent somewhere. I'm the only one. I am the only one who's here and they 
have a stretcher. They're looking at me. They're like, and I'm like, it's me. I'm going to North Star. And they're like, are you Abby? And I'm like, yeah. And they said, okay, we're going to get you in this stretcher. And we're going to get you in an ambulance. We're going to take you um, to Anchorage to a North Star. And I said, no. I was told I wasn't going there. I hyperventilated on the stretcher. They were strapping me in. Um, and I didn't want to go. I sat there and the nurse that was there, she taught me how to place the duco. And she knew how bad I didn't want to go. She sat there and she was like, you guys can't take her there. You guys can't. And they were like, we have to. Even the nurse that didn't even know me was fighting for me to not go to this treatment facility knowing how horrible it is. And I was still sent there. I had to do the same intake. The same intake person was there and said, oh, you're back? I said, yeah, I'm back. He said, well, do you got any jewelry or anything? I had to intake those and go take a shower, change into my scrubs. And it, I was automatically put into the adolescent girls because I was, I think I was 15 or 16 at the time. How are you doing today? Today, I can say I've definitely overcome a lot of my struggles. I'm definitely very proud of how far I've come because... I've tried to end my life 17 times, all different types of ways. And for some reason, I'm still here. I don't know what that reason is, but I know it's for something in the field of foster care. My name's gonna be big, and I do it because of my brother. I do it because of my family. The only reason I'm in FFCA is because of my sisters. I wouldn't have known about FFCAs if it wasn't for my sisters. And so I continue to do the advocacy I do in hopes that the system will change. And I think the really big thing is nobody should lose their life to the foster care system. Nobody should lose their life because the state isn't doing their job. But my brother did, and that's not fair at all and i'm here to change that abby thank you so much and i'm so glad you're here my husband and i were foster parents our lives were forever changed in the most profound ways please if you are at all interested visit the link in the show notes to learn more about becoming a licensed foster parent we have heard directly from foster youth today and their voices are important their stories are too often overlooked and it's time we started listening on a later podcast episode, I'll be offering a different perspective about psychiatric hospitals in Alaska, including North Star. I know of parents who have admitted their children to North Star because they felt there was no other option. In their experience, their children received the necessary care they needed. Could our psychiatric hospitals do better? Absolutely. But I also know that there are many employees whose heart is in the right place and do want the best for the people who walk through their doors. One more thing. OCS case managers are the folks on the front lines of these painfully difficult situations. The case manager decides if children should be removed from their home or if they should stay. It's an incredibly stressful job when the case managers have everything they need to do well and a manageable caseload. Most of the time, though, OCS case managers are in short supply, and therefore they manage too many cases. 
This inevitably leads to cases not getting the level of attention they deserve and case managers burning out and leaving their jobs. I'm dropping a link in the show notes to learn more about applying to be an OCS case manager. We need more good people to step up and do this essential work. I have two bills that will be heard in the House this session. The first, House Bill 320, would protect foster youth sibling relationships when they get adopted. What this bill does is when a foster youth is adopted, they become a stranger to their biological family. But this bill would exclude their sibling relationships, which means that after they're adopted, they are still brother and sister with their biological siblings. The second bill is House Bill 363. What this bill would require is that foster youth placed in a psychiatric institution would get a timely hearing in front of a judge to ensure that they actually require that level of care. This bill has been referred to Health and Social Services Committee. The sibling bill has been referred to the Judiciary Committee. Please stay tuned for public testimony opportunities. We will need folks to call in and speak to the necessity of these bills when the time comes. Big thanks to Facing Foster Care in Alaska. I'm also dropping a link to that organization in the show notes. And huge gratitude to our six guests today. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us. To reach me, email rep.andrew.gray at akleg.gov or call us on our office number, 907-465-4940.